that's hard, you know, and it's, it's scary to put yourself on the line and to stand up with conviction and sell Mm -hmm. your product, your story, your journey, your vision for how you as one individual human being are going to change the jewelry industry. I mean, it's like crazy, but I just felt so passionate about it. And I was so excited to start something new on my own. I felt very empowered to do that and ready to do it in my life. And so I just, I just did it. No one can stop me. Madeline Frazier is a seasoned entrepreneurista. You're about to hear all about her previous experience co-founding two other businesses and what ultimately led her to found her most recent company, Gemist. Two years later, Gemist has been called the Warby Parker of the jewelry industry because it allows customers to try pieces on at home before committing, in addition to allowing customers to custom design jewelry online. Coming up, Madeline shares her early experience with entrepreneurship and lessons learned that she now applies to Gemist, the behind the scenes of what it's really like to make a deal on Shark Tank, what sparked her idea to launch her business and how she turned her idea into a reality, how the founder of Tinder became Madeline's business mentor, and finally, Madeline's best tips for raising capital. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Madeline, I am so happy to finally be here with you today to share your entrepreneurista journey and story. This interview has been a long time in the making. I know we connected a few years ago, and I cannot wait for you to to share all the incredible things that you've accomplished over the years. So thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you, Stephanie, for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I've also loved watching you guys grow and everything that you're building is, is really inspiring to me. I always say... Thank goodness for social media. So even though we're so far away and have never met in person, I feel like we're all so connected and we're all able to stay in touch and see what's happening in each other's businesses and, and be there to, to support one another. But speaking of businesses, your business, Gemist, is not your first venture. You've had a few different businesses that you've started over the years. I would love if you could share a little background and, and backstory as to how you got started as an entrepreneurista. Sure. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about me first and and where I grew up. I grew up in LA, went to an all girls school for high school. So, you know, I've, I was always taught to be very strong, to raise my hand whenever I had an answer to a question, even if it was wrong and to really speak out about what I wanted and what I believed in. And I also was really lucky because I have two parents who are in the television industry, but they were very entrepreneurial themselves. And so I was kind of raised in this lovely family where I was able to say, hey, I'm going to do something that's unique and different. I don't think I ever thought I would be an entrepreneur. This sort of just happened to me. Uh, But I do think that now that I'm in this this world, (laughs) I definitely fit this job. Like I actually say a lot, I'm like, what other job would I do? Because this is actually literally the only job I've ever had. Um, I've always created a company, raised funding, built it from scratch and paid myself basically. So this is actually all I know, which is really kind of weird. You know, it's a very unique thing, I think. But anyway, I ended up starting my first company in college uh, when I was the sophomore junior, kind of around the end of my sophomore year into my junior year. I went to George Washington University in D.C., And I was a fine art major, but you know, the thing that was so weird is I came from a gap year in India. So I spent a year teaching art in Kiratpur in Northern India to 700 kids who had never really done anything around the the sense of art. Right. So I'm an artist. That's one thing about me. But so I lived like alone in India in rural India, (laughs) all these life experiences ahead of going to college. So I land in college and everyone's like, oh, are you going to join a sorority? And like, you know, it's just totally polar opposite of what I was going through and coping with and all that stuff. And I was in the art department and it was just, it was a hard time for me that first semester of college because I was 
kind of having a hard time making friends. I didn't feel really challenged by the art department because I had just come from teaching art, right? You know, it was, it was a weird feeling. And um, I actually, my second semester of my freshman year, I found interior architecture and design. GW has a great program for that. And that was kind of the moment where I really felt like I got my footing in terms of being a college student. I loved the program. Um, I felt challenged and lo and behold, I met my first two co-founders right in that very first architectural drafting class. <laughs> so, you know, crazy. How did that experience meeting them and, you know, finding your love and passion, how did that turn into a business and so quickly because you were college students? Yeah, it was weird. I mean, I think because we were at GW, you know, there are fewer people who are in the art world or in the design world. A lot of our friends were, you know, an econ or poli sci majors, things like that. And so we were sort of known as the design kids, this trio of uh, women who were very into that. And so when we were sophomores, a lot of our friends were moving out of their dorms and into their first apartments, and they were asking us for help around furnishing spaces. So they'd say, hey, you know, I've got $2,000. I want to make like an adult apartment and like be cool and make it look nice, but I don't really want to go to Ikea. So we started helping them just on our phones, like texting them, okay, get me some measurements. Here are some stuff, buy this, whatever, making them floor plans and mood boards and stuff design, but through our phones or whatever. And at that point, you know, there wasn't virtual interior design. It was not a thing. You had to go to a high-end interior designer. You had to go to like Ikea, right? Or a retail store. What year was this? This was, this was like 2012, 2013. Okay. And, you know, even when we started coming up with the concept, people would tell me there's no way anyone's going to buy a sofa online. Like stuff like that, where you're just like, well, but, but what? And now you look it back and you're like, wow, a lot's changed. Yes. Um, and so anyway, we realized we sort of had a niche market with this college crowd or this college community. And we created one of the very first ever online interior design platforms. And it was called Zoom Interiors. And we knew nothing about business. <laughs> we actually, <laughs> the three of us, uh, my business partners are named Beatrice and Lizzie. The three of us um, applied for this business plan competition at GW. I think we were the only women we went to like the meeting or whatever. It was very, you know, scary, but we did it. We got rejected within like three hours of submitting it. You know, it was like a lot of people didn't think the idea made sense, um, wow. which is normal, I think, for anything that's new and different. And But yep. we did it. We just started building it. We started building clientele. We started, you know, getting interns and none of us knew what it meant to raise funding. I don't think I even knew what like venture capital was at that point in my life. Yeah. But I was always looking for ways to get eyeballs on the business for free. That was kind of my thing. And I remember being in the cafeteria one night and they had Shark Tank playing on the television. Um, and it was three boys who were college kids who were pitching this like moving company for college students. And I just thought, oh, oh my God, well, three boys are on Shark Tank. Uh, we sure as hell could get on Shark Tank. Who's the yeah. thing of course, everyone was like, you can't get on Shark Tank. That's insane. And I was like, watch me. I love it when people tell me I can't do something. <laughs> um, and so from there, we, I just basically like, you know, consistently kept calling them and, and emailing. And, and finally the, one of the producers called us back and she said, listen, if you get me a tape uh, for the show in the next 24 hours, I'll get you in front of the producers with only, I think it was like 200 people, 200 companies, not 500,000. Wow. Right. Um, and so we got, you know, first glimpse and they had us on the show. It was season five and it was just a wild ride to go through as a founder and kind of getting, your sea legs and what it means to pitch and what it means to have yep. a business and what the number side of the business are, right? Like all these little things that you be not being a business school major, we yeah. didn't really know a lot of that stuff. What was your experience like going through the process of applying for the show, getting accepted, the prep? I know a lot of our entrepreneurs, you know, their one of their goals is to get on Shark Tank okay. because of the press that it gets for your business, the, you know, the exposure, the experience. So what were some of the learning lessons there? You know, it's it's definitely a process that you have to have time to do it. So that's a little bit of a bummer that it does take a lot of your energy and time because there really is no guarantee that they're going to even air your episode. That's one thing that yeah. I thought was really interesting because they overtape for like whatever, you know, they, they overtape if it's a good episode, they'll air it. I guess if it's not, they won't. That was hard. It was a waiting game. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of energy to kind of go through that. And then not to mention like the emotional energy that it took to actually pitch you know, and go walk down that hallway and into those, you know, the doors open. I mean, we were like terrified 
But what I will say is you're talking to human beings, you know, we were pitching to normal people. Yeah, they're celebrities and they're on TV, but at the end of the day, we're all human. And so I felt that was really interesting. They edit the show so that it looks really scary. But when you're really just chatting with the sharks, you're just pitching them your company, right? Like you're really just talking like people. So we were pitching to them probably like an hour or more, you know, and they cut down the segment to like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. So what you see on the segment is not necessarily exactly what happens in the room, which is definitely bizarre. And then the other thing to know is that it's a handshake deal. I think that that's really important for every founder to know. You're not giving up equity. If you say yes on the show, you're not beholden to moving forward on that deal without seeing any paperwork or anything crazy like that. Uh, so, you know, if you can get on, do it and, and try to, you know, find the right partner if that works for you. The other thing that's fascinating is only one in nine deals that are made on the show actually go through in real life. So interesting. (laughs) Yes. So what happened? Did you end up getting a deal? We got a deal with Barbara Corcoran and it was, it was lovely. And, you know, I, I, we kind of decided like, if we get a deal, let's, let's take it. Cause we knew we could talk about it after and that there would be a time for negotiation post being on freaking television. Right. Uh, and so she's such a wonderful, kind woman, very, very smart. And we ended up talking to her a lot after going through that negotiation process. And we sort of said, listen, if you're really willing to be a partner in this and, and mentor us because we know nothing, right? Like we're young college kids, we're learning. Um, we need that mentorship, right? And if you have the time and energy to do that, great. We'll, we'll go forward with this version of a deal. But if not, just tell us now and let's just kind of part ways amicably. And she was so nice. She was really honest. She was like, you know what, ladies, I wouldn't be able to give you the time that you deserve. So, you know, we might as well just part ways. And that's what we did. So we walked away from from that deal, but it led us into a whole other interesting world of investment, which we can dive into. (laughs) Yes, we're we're definitely going to talk about that. Are you still in touch with Barbara to this day? I I mean, I don't talk to her regularly, but yeah, we, we, you know, we connect here and there. She's definitely an incredible entrepreneurista. I know yeah. our listeners have asked us to get to get Barbara on the podcast and we haven't had her on yet. So yeah, hopefully one day we'll have her have her share her story too. And it's so interesting for you to share those insights because I've heard some of them behind the scenes from some other entrepreneuristas that that have been on the show. But you know, many people don't know these things. And, yeah. you know, TV looks glamorous and it looks like it can just like happen so fast, but it's like you know, six months to a year of work to even build up to that moment. And like you said, there's, there's no guarantee. So I think that's really great advice and and helpful insight. So how did that, this company lead to your next company, Hutch? And then I want to get into what you're building now with Gemis too. Great. Yeah. So it was funny. I think we sort of manifested the fact that we needed a mentor through that whole like Barbara situation and Anyway, the show aired, I think, I think we taped it and it maybe aired like six months later, right? It takes time to air. But once it aired, we got a lot of attention from the venture capital world, which was very interesting, right? And a lot of different people reached out, but the most interesting was Sean Rad, the founder of Tinder, um, who I guess saw the show and we have friends in common because we're both from LA. So he Facebook messaged me. And he basically said, Hey, like, I, I love what you guys are doing. And do you need help? I'm like, do we need help? Yeah, we need help. Right. <laughs> uh, hello. But at the same time, I was like, Sean Rad, why do you want to help us? Like, okay. You know, it was, it was a surreal thing to, yeah. to have that happen. And so Beatrice and I got on the phone with him just to see like, what's, what's up with this guy. And he's just the, I mean, he's a dear friend now, lovely, kind, smart, and, you know, just the best kind of human you'd want to do business with and have as a friend and just was so normal and kind and was kind of like, I want to help you guys. I'm interested in this. Like, I love what you're doing. Do you want to meet up? And so we were actually living in Philadelphia at the time. And he was like, why don't we have lunch in LA? And we're like, sure, we'll be there. Let's do it next week. So we flew to LA <laughs> for this lunch. Um, and we were lucky. My par- My parents were in LA at the time. So I was able to, you know, stay at their house at least, you know, save some money on, on all that. But it was crazy. We just sat down with him and his partner, Justin, and uh, kind of talked about what the future of the company looked like. And we really wanted to move it in a more tech forward place. We wanted to create really like a, an app to be able to design on your own. We had a lot of consumers like working with designers, but also really wanting the freedom to kind of plug and play, mm-hmm. right? Like drag and drop furniture, see their spaces come to life. That instant gratification was kind of what our consumers were telling us they were looking for. And 
we didn't know exactly how to hire engineers or raise funding or anything, right? You know, this was all very new to us. And so having someone like Sean come on board and, and nurture that and, and really show us what does it mean to do all of these things. Mm. Um, we always say how the Hutch experience really felt like our crash course for business. It was kind of like getting going to business school in a lot of ways. We've just learned so much. I mean, it's a wild ride, but very, very interesting to go through that process so young. Totally. I say that all the time. I feel like until you get your feet wet and start a business and learn how to just figure it out as you go along, it, it really is a, there, there's nothing like it. I don't think they, they teach all of the things in business school that you learn when you're actually no way. They can't. doing it. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine, I haven't gone, but I, I can't imagine. I haven't either. <laughs> yeah. That's why I think like that experience was actually perfect for me because you learn as you do it. Right. Um, and therefore you end up learning an incredible amount more, I would assume than just learning in the classroom. Absolutely. So tell me what happened next and how did Gemma's come to be? Yeah. So, I mean, Hutch was a wild ride. We raised a lot of money and uh, grew the company through series A. And it was just a really fascinating experience of figuring out what it meant to be a founder, what it meant to have vision, what it meant to grow something. I was not CEO, which was also interesting. You know, we sort of <laughs> at Zoom, we we didn't have roles, so to speak. We were just three women dividing and conquering based on our strengths, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because we sat down with Sean at like the coffee bean near the office, like one of our first meetings in LA with him. And he just looked at us and he goes, okay, so like who's CEO? <laughs> And, you know, I don't think I even, I don't think we even really knew what a CEO meant or was mm -hmm. at that point. You know, this was like 2015. It was just one of those things where I was kind of doing the Shark Tank stuff and getting us press and I'm very outgoing and I was doing all the kind of networking stuff and marketing things. So I became CMO. Lizzie, incredibly creative person, very much loves interior design. And so she was kind of the creative director. And then B managed a little bit more of the business stuff. So she kind of fell into that CEO role, but very interesting to sort of see that evolve, right? And in a split second, you're deciding like kind of the future of what what you're doing at the company. It was so interesting to kind of go through that experience. And so, you know, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about what it means to grow a team, what it means to raise funding, right? What kinds of investors you want, what kinds of investors you don't want, how to create company culture that's beneficial to everybody, right? And how to listen to the consumer. I think that was the biggest thing that I came away from when I started Gemist, because I don't think we did that well enough during my time at Hutch. It was not we weren't kind of learning from the consumer in a way that I felt was necessary. Um, and so when I started Gemis, that was my number one thing. I was like, I'm going to get this to like 70% and then I'm going to let the consumer during beta and even beyond that, get us to hundred percent of what this company yeah. really needs to be. And that mentality really, I think has shaped a huge reason why Gemis has been so successful. Is, is Hutch still a company? It's not. That's the other thing. So we experienced a ton of failure at Hutch, a ton. Um, it was just one of those things where we were growing quickly, but we were young and there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen. At that time, we had five co-founders. So you're dealing with a lot of ego, <laughs> right? A lot of people thinking they know exactly what to do. Anyway, I ended up leaving about a year and a half, two years before Hutch officially kind of wrapped up because I think I was feeling very much like I wasn't, as devoted to the company anymore. Uh, like my voice didn't really have enough to say, I guess, you know, and I was mm -hmm. hopeful that the company would do well. I kept all my equity on the table and all that, but for whatever reason, it just, it didn't work out. And I think that that's something that for me, the, the big takeaway was enjoy the journey mm -hmm. because if you're only in this as a founder for that outcome, right. Which is what we talk about a lot, right. When you're raising funding, you have to tell people, what is the exit strategy? Where are you taking this? And that's all very important, right? But <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time, right? Um, and so I think that some people get stopped because they're so afraid of failure, right? And they get really diminished by the idea of fear. And yes, it was scary. Yes, it was hard, right? There was a, there was a roller coaster of emotions, but I needed to go through that to experience that, what it looks like on the other side of that, I think also, mm -hmm. you know, is so important. And actually one of the mantras that we, you know, hit home time and time again with, with Hutch, and I still bring this into my, my team at Gemis is fail fast, fix fast, learn fast. 
You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the key, right? It's, you have to fail a lot to equal what, what version of success is, right? And, and I would say, yeah, even though Hutch failed, we had a ton of successes along the way. And we learned a hell of a lot as a team and as individual people. And it very much shaped the kind of CEO that I am today in an incredible way. Absolutely. Courtney and I always call these our learning lessons and try not to repeat the mistakes that we've made. We can all learn from them and then move forward. And like you said, now with your, with your new business, you've had all of this incredible experience and now you can not repeat the mistakes that, that may have been made in the past. Exactly. I'm making new mistakes now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, it never stops. You know, it's like, even though this is yes, technically my third business, I've been doing this for seven going on eight years now you know, I'm still feel like I learn something new every day, every day. I mean, it's amazing. It It never stops, you know? And, you know, I think I'm much more self-aware because I'm older. I've done a lot of, you know, self-reflection on what worked and what didn't with Hutch and how I want to bring those learnings into this new business. And I think that all of those things are just building blocks to making us stronger individuals. I would love to hear the backstory of how Gemis came to be. Where did the idea come from? And then how did you turn your idea into a business? Yeah, sure. So when we were, we were running Hutch and so I was super busy, but in my personal life, I was getting engaged. Yay. It was fun and exciting. And uh, my husband and I have been married for about two and a half years, but we have been together for 12 years. So, you know, we were together for a long time. We sort of talked about the engagement openly uh, ahead of the the ring or whatever, right? Which I think is really a little bit more common nowadays. And Mm -hmm. anyway, I, I wanted a ring that was unique to me. I knew that I wanted something that kind of felt like an extension of who I was. Uh, and I kind of thought Gemist existed. This is what I think, why I think I was so shocked that it didn't. Being a digital consumer, being somebody in the tech world, basically everything I think about is consumer behavior, right? And making things easier. And so I just assumed like, oh, jewelry, huge industry. Of course, mm-hmm. you can just go online, design what you want and try it on at home. Like, I just thought that was a thing. And I was so bummed that it wasn't, you know, I, I Googled everything under the sun and, you know, the companies that I were, that I found were these companies that people know, but they're very sterile. It's like the blue Niles of the world. They mm-hmm. felt really removed from a brand that I could wrap my head around and feel loyal to. They were pretty bad from a tech perspective. I was kind of surprised by that really outdated sort of clunky technology. And then the thing that was weird was really sensory overload. Like I felt stressed mm-hmm. out. I was starting mm-hmm. to get anxiety around this idea of a ring and a custom ring. It was like, oh my God, because you go, for example, on these sites and you go to select a diamond or a gemstone and you're literally presented with like an Excel spreadsheet on a website, hundreds, and thousands. If of you don't options. know anything and nobody knows anything, come on. Like I, like, like most people are not GIA certified or whatever, right? I mean, it was it was such a weird thing. I was like, what am I even looking at? I was going cross I was getting sweaty. I was like, this is not a fun experience for me. And then I was surprised, like nobody was doing home try-on, which that kind of bummed me out. And I just thought it was like a really natural thing for the industry. Anyway, long story short, I ended up asking friends and family what to do. Cause I was like, can't do this online. What do I do? And, uh, turns out a lot of people in LA go to the jewelry district. I think that's probably a New York thing too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had a few people who were like, Oh, I've got a guy, I've got a guy. And yep. I've got a few phone numbers. The first one who called me back, I was like, I'm ready. I will be there tomorrow. Where do I go? And I had to go to, you know, downtown LA to a tiny little shoebox office, literally drew my ring on a piece of paper for <laughs> this guy to the millimeter told him what I wanted. Cause I'm creative, which is also rare. And, you know, it was a a total leap of faith. I was so shocked that I was spending all this time and energy on this silly thing. It was like totally sucking the joy out of what this experience should feel like, you know, but the, the aha moment for me was when I actually got the ring. And and it was so interesting because it showed me there was a viable product. You know, this Mm -hmm. guy made it in like two weeks, super fast. In my opinion, it was affordable. It was cheaper than I'd seen out there, but still high, high quality, like very beautiful. And I was just, I was blown away by that. And so I realized, oh, well, you can make custom jewelry quickly and affordably, like we just have to change the process getting there, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's essentially my job. If you boil down what I do for a living, that's it. Uh, and so that's when the wheels really started turning and I started you know, researching competition and the market and everything. And I was blown away because it's a huge industry. It's 300 billion global, but it's only about 10% online, 
which shocked me. I mean, that's tiny amount for such a huge industry. And so, you know, they're making their money from brick and mortar and from the typical kind of like normal jewelers, right? The way that that I, what I did, right? Um, and, And so I thought, wow, there really needs to be innovation here. But really what needs to happen is we need to be, allow people to create unique jewelry. It doesn't have to just be rings. It can be anything. Design online, right? And then I wanted home try on to be an element. I felt like allowing consumers to touch and feel those designs and wear them to lunch and show their friends and family, or even just get a few rings and like understand what styles they wanted without having to leave the house would be such a fun experience um, and really de-risk the, the scariness around this. Right. Um, and so that's what we've done. We have try on as a, as a, you know, piece of this puzzle uh, where you can essentially try on your designs and it's great. And it's, it's replica pieces, right? They're made of fashion materials. They, to you and me, they look identical to the fine jewelry equivalent, um, so to speak. You know, I mean, we're not gemologists, so it works fine. And you really get a sense of what you want and then you can tweak the design and edit it online. And then we make everything sustainably in downtown LA. It's a two week lead time. Everything's handmade exactly for you, the consumer. Uh, and it's just, it's something that I think brings a lot of meaning back into jewelry, which makes me really excited. It sort of feels like we're breathing new life into the industry. That is so incredible. And I have so many questions now based on everything that you just shared, because you essentially just told me the story of how you turned this vision into a business. But I know so much went into everything behind the scenes to actually execute and make this happen. So can you take me back to the early days? So you have this experience, you go through your own experience, designing your ring, working with this jeweler and you're still working at your other company and starting to work on this idea, what was the process like to, you know, did you put together a business plan? Did you know you needed to raise funding right away? What did you do in the early days? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I definitely, I put together a, a pitch deck. Uh, that's, I would say the modern version of a business plan. Um, and I, you know, I, that's what I did. I started looking at the market and the competition that I needed to figure out, like, do, is this different enough? Is this does this have a, a something to say that's unique? And can this actually make a splash in this industry? Um, once I did that research, I was fairly certain that yes, I, I figured it out, right? Um, and then it was just kind of finessing the idea. But I also had to figure out jewelry. <laughs> I knew nothing about jewelry, right? Before this, this is an industry that is completely foreign to me. Um, and so I started going downtown a lot and like meeting manufacturers, understanding the process of how jewelry is made and trying to figure out what it meant to do this try on piece, right? So I wanted to know if I could take a $5,000 diamond ring and make a copycat of it for 20 bucks. You know, that was what I wanted to try to do. And it's interesting because it's a hard industry to break into, right? People don't really trust you when you're new. Um, A lot of people like to say no. I think that comes out of laziness, honestly, or I don't want to work with you, right? So it was very weird to get into this world where it's, you know, complicated and overwhelming and and kind of bizarre and mostly men actually, which I thought was strange because jewelry is so for women usually. Uh, and, you know, that was interesting, but I, I did it. I, I kind of bulldozed my way in there and figured it out. And I started making samples of stuff basically. And so once I had my samples, then I had my deck, I put my deck together. What's the sell? Why are we unique? Right. What is the market size? How are we disrupting the market? Right. What's our total addressable market? All of those numbers started coming into play. Uh, and then I started asking friends and family, like, what do you think? Does this make sense to you? Would you use this, right? Really getting hard consumer feedback from day one, like without even mm-hmm. pitching this to anyone. And I recommend every founder do this. Um, just pitch your company, right? To people you trust that you like and just kind of get the heebie-jeebies out <laughs> and like get all, yep. the, get all the bumps out and, and make it smooth, right? And so I started doing that. And that's when I kind of built a prototype for the app kind of started building little things. And this was all me just putting my own time and energy and money into it initially. And then I was like, okay, I can start having some investor meetings. And that's when I took it out to, you know, I hit the pavement basically. And that's a whole other story. I mean, but that that's hard, you know, and it's, it's scary to put yourself on the line and to stand up with conviction and sell Mm -hmm. your product, your story, your journey, your vision for how, you as one individual human being are going to change the jewelry industry. I mean, it's like crazy, but I just felt so passionate about it. And I was so excited to start something new on my own. I felt very empowered to do that and ready to do it in my life. And so I just, I just did it. No one can stop me. 
I love it. You took the leap and you just started. I want to talk a bit about the fundraising process because the stat I heard from last year is that only 2.3% of funding, VC funding, went to women last year in 2020, oh God, which is- down. It used to be 2.7%. It's awful. And I can share firsthand, you know, my experience this past year, because, um, you know, separate from Social Supply and Entrepreneurista, we've been raising our first round, um, a pre-seed round for market, our, our app. And I've personally learned a lot about the fundraising process over the past year. And it is a crazy world and process out there. And I know you have so much insight and experience and many of our entrepreneurs are either currently raising money or thinking about raising money. Can you share some of the best tips that you've learned and maybe some lessons learned along the way as well? Sure. So first of all, if you are fundraising right now and you're feeling defeated or you're scared to start fundraising, don't worry. We all feel this. This is probably one of the harder things you're ever going to do in your life. So you have to kind of like, I think you have to know the heaviness of that before you set out to do it. I spend as much of my limited free time as I can mentoring female founders and male founders, whoever wants to talk to me, who's young and is new to this industry. I am so happy to give the small amount of wisdom that I have because you know, I would have loved to talk to myself when I was starting out, you know, and I think the thing that I see a lot with these younger founders is they're sort of, they, they have expectations that this isn't going to be as hard as it's going to be. And so I kind of try to like, let them know that, yeah, you're going to do it, but it's not going to be easy. And you have to know that going into it. And you have to kind of sit with that, that this is going to take you between six months and a year to do. First of all, like the time constraint of this and the fact of how hard you're going to have to work and how long it's going to take you is one thing that I find that people don't know about. You know, oh, I can do this in a couple months or in like two or three months or whatever. I'm like, um, no, you can't. <laughs> I mean, unless you're just like have every connection in the world and you're, I don't know, maybe have sold like three companies before. I'm not sure, right? It's rare to have that happen. Um, usually fundraising rounds take me between six and nine months depending on where the company's at and who I have next to me and all that stuff, right? And that's even me. I've done this before, right? I've been through the, the, the trenches of this and I have a background in it. That's me. That's how long it takes me, right? So I think you just need to know that those are that's what you're entering into. Um, you need to know that you're going to get rejected probably over 150 times. Like uh, you're going to have to hear no, thank you, 150 times before you hear yes, please, once. Do you ask questions when you hear no as to why they're passing so you can gain more information? And do you make changes ever based on that information that you hear? Yes. I think that if you're a good VC, it's important to give constructive criticism in a kind way. Believe me, I've met some not nice people in this industry. And so I always say like, be nice, come on, like at least. Yes. And then I always tell people, you know, the best thing you can walk away with is a new connection and one introduction mm -hmm. so that it's not a waste of time, right? So if somebody says no to you, great. Is there anyone that you know in your network that would be willing to talk to me? This is a numbers game, end of the day. Like you need yep. to be talking to 10 people a day when you're in the thick of fundraising. And all that is, is networking and meeting other people and I would also tap very much into the founder network. Mm -hmm. Founder introductions are priceless. A warm intro from a founder is awesome. It's awesome. And I do it for as many people as I can because it's important for us to help each other. I have a ton of girlfriends who are also founders. We all help each other. And yes. a ton of male friends too. We all just, founders are a rare breed of individual <laughs> and we know how hard it is. And so therefore yeah. there's a lot of empathy and compassion, right? And so we stick our, we stick our heads out there and we say, Hey, we're going to help each other. Absolutely. Look, that's why we started our entrepreneurs, why we started the podcast, why we started our membership community, because we are all better together and helping one another and making introductions. And we cannot all go at this alone. It's impossible. So totally. And making sure that we ask each other for the help, like not being shy to reach out and saying, hey, I'm doing XYZ. Can you help introduce me to this person that you know? Like we just have to ask. That's basically half the battle, right? Like you have to, you basically have to have a create a network of people that can help you and can make introductions because the other thing you can't really do is cold outreach. 
people think that you can. It's, it's, I, I wouldn't recommend it. You can try. I mean, you're just not going to get, you have to think about it. These venture capital people, I mean, these, they're getting thousands of pitches. I mean, in, they're getting inundated with every type of company under the sun. So a cold pitch is probably not going to get anyone's attention where mm-hmm. if you can find and build a network of people that love and support you and also are passionate about your company, that's how you're going to open doors right? For the right people. And if you're great at pitching, which is the other thing we should talk about is what makes a good pitch. Yes. You're going to naturally become, and if you're also just kind of a charismatic person and you're like nice and normal, right? You're probably going to connect with a lot of the people that you talk to. And maybe the company's not right for them, but you want to make sure that they walk away feeling like a warmth about you and excitement about who you are as a founder, what you're building, why you're building it, then they're going to intro you to people. Absolutely. Do you have do you have a strategy in terms of when you start your raise, making your list of everyone you're going to reach out to, having certain email templates and follow-up templates? Do you have a whole process that you use now? Yeah, I do. Um, I would recommend Streak. Do you guys know about Streak? No, no, tell us. Okay, so Streak is just a Google plugin. It's awesome. It goes into your like Gmail and it's basically a CRM. So you can create this funnel for your fundraise wherever you are in the in the stage. And you can have like contacted, uh, warm intro, you know, whatever, like um, had first phone call, had second phone call, passed, still in conversation with one. You know, you can basically break down your channel, your flow of where all these people are. The thing that's so important about that is there's so many calls you're going to have. So you can add notes to everything. You can put all the email. They save all the email threads right in there. Cause it's like, you don't need to be spending the time making a freaking Google sheet. Okay. And like yep. going back and forth, you just need to be in your email thriving in there. Right. And then saving everything that you can, because the other thing is that's going to help you so much in future fundraises because we forget, right. It kind of like blackout and just do your job. Um, and so I've used that for years. And so I have a crazy long list of people I've talked to, and then I have little notes about everybody. So maybe two years later, when I'm going to raise my series A or whatever, I have a whole network to tap into. They already know me. They already like me. They're already understand what I'm doing. You know what I mean? And you were just too, maybe you were too early then when you spoke to them and now it's a better time to to say to people, you're too early. I'm like, "Mm, okay. It's like, you're, you're going to be too late. Exactly. (laughs) It's like, that basically just means they're not into it. You know, if if they're into it, the guys, they're going to invest in you. Right. Um, whether, no matter what stage you're at, usually, um, you know, and, and you gotta be smart about who you're talking to and, and do the research and make sure that they're a fund that invests in your area of expertise, invest in your market, invest in your stage of fundraise, right? So the only problem is a lot of these VC websites now I've noticed are like, they say like, we, we invest from seed to series D. Like, you know, it's like, that is so broad. What are you talking about? Right. And I've also noticed if you are a consumer product, right. If you're D to C or anything like that, it's also harder to raise funding for products like that. A lot of um, investors specifically over the COVID era have kind of transitioned from the kind of D to C energy into more technology focused businesses. And I don't know if that's just because the economy and whatever's going on right now, but you'll also hear people say, oh, well, we're just not investing in that sector at this point in time. Right. And that's a bummer. You know, you can't really get around certain things like that. You're about to close your next round. Congratulations. Can you share a little bit about what this last process has been like with this raise and anything that you did differently? Yeah. Um, it's been a challenge. It's been, it's been grueling. I think this is a very weird time to raise funding. We have to like kind of say that and pat ourselves on the back for the, being a founder in this these last two years. Very, very difficult. I mean, we launched our digital platform like right when COVID hit, like in February of 2020. <laughs> um, and so we've been a company that has had to start from scratch and grow during a global pandemic. Yeah. Holy crap. How, how did you do it? I, I don't know. I like, I blacked out, man. I don't even know. It was so stressful. It was so hard. 
you know, figuring all of that out. And I think that we don't really realize the emotional impact all of this has on us just as Mm -hmm. people. So you have that on top of trying to keep your business afloat and trying to become a brand that matters during a time when people don't give a shit about brands because they're like scared of everything else that's going on in the world. And so it was just really, really difficult. I think we were very lucky because we have a product that lends itself very well to being at home with home try on Mm -hmm. and and the fact that we're digital and everything. So we've done very, very well, despite this insane year, but you know, nevertheless, it's been very hard now fundraising during this time. Also very interesting and very difficult. I found, right. Because venture capitalists are changing their theses, right. Or their thesis, they are shifting the way that they're thinking, right. They're maybe afraid to put money into things at this time of, of what's going on in the world. So, you know, I definitely experienced, you know, a lot of people really quickly emailing me back being like, oh, we changed what we're doing, or we're not investing in this, or, oh, we're not investing at an early stage. Also, that was something mm-hmm. I found a lot, like we're not doing seed, we're only doing like A and above or whatever. Right. And I was just like, ah, oh, damn, you know, bummer. Right. So initially when I started the process, I was feeling good about myself and then boom, 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 very quickly, you get 20 people saying something like that. That's scary. Really scary. Right. How do you keep going when you hear all of these no's? What is it in you that gives you that drive? I don't know. I cry a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You have to, I think that it's important to to be in touch with yourself emotionally. And you can't be a robot about this stuff. I'm somebody who really tries to have balance. You know, I think working out is really important. I work out every day. Meditating is really important to me. Having a family dinner every night, connecting with my friends and family. You gotta have a life outside of this job. Um, And that's what I think keeps you sane because the job itself is really, really hard and challenging and you have to just grow a thick skin, right? But you know, you're gonna get no's all the time. The thing, the no's that burn the most are when you really like a fund when you really get attached to an investor, when you go start maybe the diligence process and it doesn't pan out. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that burn, right? Where you do have to just be like, all right, I have to go cry for an hour. Like I just need to take an hour and feel like shit right now. And then you got to dust yourself off and you have to look in the, I look in the mirror a lot and I say, go back there and do it. You know, you have Mm -hmm. to be your like cheerleader. You know, it's, it's important. You have to surround yourself with people who also are cheerleading for you. You don't need anyone who's not going to be 100% positive, you know, and I'm lucky. I have such a great support system. My husband is awesome. We had a crazy thing happen like a few, uh, I think a month or two ago, which is with the negotiations of all of this. And, you know, I'm like dealing with getting people to say yes to impossible things. Right. And I felt so uh, defeated at this one moment. And I called my husband and he, he was like, okay, well, first of all, you're going to figure it out and you're going to do it. But second of all, you're the one who's going to do it. Nobody can do this, but you, Mm -hmm. right. If anyone can do this, you can. And I just, I loved that because I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's so true. It's like, uh, yeah, me, I'm going to do this. And you have to just like source that power. And that's the transition of fear and anxiety and being really, really scared. It's like you take it and it becomes this fuel to just kick ass. And I have children talking about it because it is a, it is an emotional thing and you just have to push through it. Totally. We just recorded an episode of the podcast with Anissa. She's the founder of a company called Anissa Beauty. And we were literally just talking about this and how important it is to have other people telling you and reminding you how great you are, all of these awesome things that you're doing. And we're going to be doing an Entrepreneurista League event with her that you'll definitely have to come to now that you're part of the community as well, where we're going to be doing a lot of this and encouraging each other and celebrating each other's successes. And you'll definitely have to go post in our in our Geneva chat platform, all of your incredible wins, because everyone's in there congratulating each other, celebrating all of these things. And it's so important because you, you forget, like, especially now, many of us are working from home and we're, you know, on back-to-back Zooms or investor calls, whatever we're doing. And we don't have that group around us being like, good job. You did it. Like we need that. We need that. And and I think we also need to remember as people to, to also be like, Hey, pat on the back. Right. Like, yep. like I did that too, you know, and I, I forget that a lot. And, and when I do remember to do it, I feel happy that I'm sort of like taking a moment of pause and looking back at all this hard work and what it's brought. And like I said, you know, yes, bottom line, we all want to do what we're doing to like change an industry and make money. Right. I mean, that's true. 
there's, there is that energy around this, right? And especially when you're raising venture capital, you need to know what exit looks like and that's yep. what you're selling. That's what you have to do. But if you're not happy and if you're not enjoying the journey getting there, there's no point in doing it. Absolutely. The chances are slim that you're going to get there, right? You're going to work your butt off and you're going to do everything in your power to do it, but have fun and enjoy, enjoy it as much as you can. All right, we're going to do a few fun rapid fire questions. The first few words that come to your mind. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Describe yourself in three words. Passionate, powerful, vulnerable. If you could learn one new skill today, what would it be? Oh my God, that's a hard one. I would love to actually learn how to knit. (laughs) Ah, no one's ever said that. I love that. (laughs) I did it a long time ago when I was little and totally forgot how to do it. So what is the app on your phone that you cannot live without? Mm, probably Instagram. I do love my Instagram. It's, it's, it's not, Who doesn't? Like <laughs> what is your favorite business tool or solution that's helped you in your business? Um, I think streak is a great one, which I talked about earlier. Um, and I think Slack, we love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it could run my business without that. Totally agree with you there. And finally, do you have a hidden talent? Oh my God. Yeah, I have a few. Um, I'm a pianist. I compose Mm. my own music and uh, I'm a sculptor and painter and I ride horses on the weekends. Wow. So uh, (laughs) you you really can do it all. (laughs) I love having extra things that get my mind off work. I, I think having hobbies and you know, being in nature is really, really important. We actually just moved up to Ojai, which is about an hour or so outside of LA. And it's awesome. Like we have a little ranch up here. I have baby goats and <gasps> I'm riding horses again. And oh my gosh, you have baby goats. Like, it's so fun. You know, it's like these, I can, I am in my office a lot, but I can like spend these like little mini breaks during my calls and stuff. And I just go like hug a goat. Just everyone. Just oh my gosh. <laughs> Do you share that on your Instagram? I have to I'm yeah, gonna I'm follow sure. you and watch. Yeah. I definitely post about my goats. And then we have, I have it in my, um, little profile on Instagram. We have a Instagram for the ranch. It's called Casa Luna del Rio. We named it Luna del Rio moon river. So, you know, we're right by this kind of river right off of uh, our property. And so that's why we named it that. I'm going to follow you right now. This is amazing. (laughs) Do you have a quote or mantra that you live your life by? Yes. So it's do one thing every day that scares you. It's actually a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt and growing up, my mom had it as a magnet on our refrigerator. And I think in a lot of ways, it it was something that she lived by. She sadly died of cancer about four years ago, but Mm -hmm. you know, she was diagnosed too young when I was about 10. And Mm -hmm. so she had to literally go into every day and just fight. And she is the most amazing woman in the whole world. She started Santa Cancer and her own nonprofit called the Noreen Fraser Foundation for Women's Cancers and single-handedly raised hundreds of millions of dollars to change what it means to get breast cancer, ovarian cancer, et cetera. But she would tell me when I was little, she'd say, you know, go out there and just do it. Don't be afraid. And, you know, things are scary, but just fight through them. Just do one thing every day that scares you, you know? And I, I think that that doesn't mean go and be scared, right? It it means that life is going to throw you a lot of things that are scary, that are fear filled with fear, that are riddled with failure. And the most important thing is to, you know, look at them face on and have the courage to walk right through them. Absolutely. I I could not agree more. Is there a lesson or something you've learned over the years that you wish you knew when you first started out and your entrepreneurial journey? Yes. Um, one thing I would say is stay in the middle. That's one that I, <laughs> I learned the hard way, uh, especially around the time we were, we were growing Hutch. It was not an easy time because we were young and confused with everything. But I remember I would like go home, drive home crying, or I would drive home like I was the happiest person in the world. So it was like these really interesting, you know, within a day or so, I'd be happy or very sad. 
Um, and that is not a good way to live life in general, right? It's, it's too intense. That is a serious roller coaster because what I realized is that nothing was ever as good or as bad as we thought it was going to be anyway, right? Like the great thing always turned out to be not so great. And the terrible thing, like, wasn't as bad. Um, and so I started writing down, like, stay in the middle. And then I would say it in my head, stay in the middle, stay in the middle, you know, and, and in those moments, it actually let me get back to this middle ground to feel like, right, I'm going to wait and see what happens. I'm not going to go to worst case scenario or best case scenario. I'm going to stay calm and we're going to stay in the middle. (laughs) I love that. Thank you for sharing that. My final question for you today, and we could chat for forever. We're going to have to do, do a follow-up on this for sure. What does being an entrepreneur really mean to you? Oh man, I think it, it means creating something out of nothing. Um, I think that's something that's been so exciting to me about every different company that I've created, that there's no rule book, right? There's, there's no guide to this. It's, it really comes from yourself, your vision, what's inside of you. And I always love that piece of the puzzle. I love having that vision and feeling excited about what's next for the business. And I also think that being an entrepreneurista means that you have to help other women in this industry. Oh, my dog. Hi, April. Sorry. (laughs) I think that the other thing is being an entrepreneurista means really helping other women in this industry come up with you. I think that it's really all about sharing your wisdom, sharing your contacts, being open to just helping one another, that this isn't a singular thing. This isn't about one person going to the top. We all have to help each other get there, men and women alike. Uh, which is incredibly important. And I think that that is a huge, a huge thing that equals entrepreneurista. Absolutely. Your story and journey is so inspiring and I cannot wait to continue to follow all of the incredible things that you're going to continue to do. Where can everyone find you and follow you? And for our entrepreneuristas who would like to try Gemis, where's the best place for them to uh, go learn more? Yeah. So uh, you guys can follow me on Instagram. It's at mad, M-A-D Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to help. And, you know, if you're a female founder out there and, and you're looking for a bit of wisdom, I will give you what I know. <laughs> I'm happy to support you. And then, you know, Gemist is at Gemist, G-E-M-I-S-T co on Instagram. And then the website is Gemist.co. So check us out, come design some jewelry, spread the word about what we're building. We are so excited to start scaling and growing this company in a really a meaningful way. And we want your feedback. We want to know what you think. We build the company based on you guys. Uh, we really listen when you tell us what you want and what you want to see in the future. Uh, so let us know. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entrepreneurista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entrepreneuristas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entrepreneurista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entrepreneurista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.